1: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who will be converting all my money into Facebook's cryptocurrency just as soon as hell freezes over, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play two sessions from this year's Code Conference, both moderated by the great Casey Newton, who is in the studio with me right now. Hey, Casey. Hey, Kara. How you doing? Doing great. We just recorded a special episode of Pivot Together, which will be out this Friday. The first part of today's Recode Decode is Casey's interview with Adam Masseri, who runs Instagram, and Andrew Bosworth, who leads Facebook's work in AR and VR. Casey, talk a bit about Adam and Andrew and why we decided to have them on stage at Code.
1: So these are two of Mark Zuckerberg's most trusted lieutenants. And when they speak, they really are speaking for Facebook. Uh, Masseri leads Instagram, which is the future of Facebook, and Bosworth is trying to figure out a hardware division. So we had a lot we wanted to talk to them, both about their individual works and then just about Facebook as a company.
2: Right, and they talked a lot about breaking they talked about all kinds of things.
1: That's right. Well I asked them, you know, like should we break up Facebook? And and frankly, why don't we break up Facebook? And what did they say? They said uh that they didn't think they would be that good. No, exactly.
2: Yeah. Anyway, it's a great interview. Then later in the show, we're gonna play a panel discussion that you moderated called Inside Outside, where you talked to Jessica Powell, Nicole Wong, and Antonio Garcia Martinez. We'll talk more about that a little later in the show, but now it's Facebook time. So let's go to the Phoenician Resort in Scottsville, Arizona to hear Casey's interview with Instagram's Adam Masseri and Facebook's Andrew Bosworth.
1: All right, so a lot to talk about today, and I want to start with an announcement that Mark made earlier this year, which was that Facebook was going to move to a privacy-focused vision of the future. Your core product right now is a public-facing feed, and Boz, you make hardware. So where do the two of you (laughs) fit into this private future of Facebook?
3: So I think when people think about Instagram, they often think about feed, because it's the heart of the experience, it's where we started. Uh, but there's also, obviously, stories, which is growing very, very quickly, and what people don't often think about is messaging. Direct is actually driving driving a lot of our growth. So the way we think about it at Instagram is that there's a range of experiences, from the most public, me posting something for everybody to see that will be on my profile for forever, right. to the most private, which is a conversation between just two people and messaging. And so... Certain types of expression make more sense on the feed side and certain make more sense on the private side, and we want to build a range of tools to enable all of that.
4: All right, what about hardware? Yeah, I mean, for us, the, it's really... Con- uh, Convenient and consistent with where we already are on hardware. Certainly, the VR market is, is growing, but it's still relatively small and focused on a lot of single player activities or kind of social experiences that are dedicated to that environment. And on Portal, you know, we went really hard in the direction of, of private communication. You know, there's a lot of commentary when we launched Portal, like, hey, is this the right time? It was the exact right time, because Portal is a product that is exactly about what Facebook is at its core, connecting people directly and it's, you know, entirely about private communication between two endpoints.
1: But it's also uh, a camera and a microphone inside the home that Facebook has at least some access to that data. I know when the product launched, there was a lot of commentary, including from a lot of the folks probably in this auditorium right now that said, I would never let Facebook put a camera and microphone in my home. It's been on sale for a couple of months now. What have sales been like and do you feel like this trust deficit that you have to reckon with has affected that?
4: Yeah, it's been, well, it's been really good. and We actually have you know, a lot more that we're going to unveil later in this fall, new form factors of portal that we're going to be shipping. and What's interesting about it is, you know, it is a camera and it's a microphone, so it's capable of recording. You know, this gives a, a good insight into how much we were prioritizing privacy and user trust. We didn't ship the ability to record things. People can't record live videos, they can't record videos to, to send to their friends. It's really for calls and those calls are encrypted. Um, And so we left functionality on the table to make sure that people felt like they understood what this device was. And then, kind of not to put too fine a point on it, but remember, the reason we're doing this to begin with is we think there's a whole new generation of hardware coming out. The mobile platforms are relatively mature at this point, hardware is coming to the home, and you want to make sure that human connection, connection between two people, is a first party experience on that hardware. And that wasn't what we were seeing with the kind of smart speakers and smart displays being put in people's homes. They were focused on these other kind of use cases that weren't very social. Um, And so not only am I happy with what Portal's done on its own rights and what the product is, but also what you're seeing now in the industry is smart screen manufacturers are adding cameras. They're refocusing on the ability to make calls and connect with people. When they were gonna, a year ago, they were going the other direction. They were taking that stuff out. So I think we've had a, a really outsized impact for just being just a few months in.
1: How many have you sold?
4: I'm not gonna answer that question.
1: All right, what form factors are you thinking about? Well, I have, I'm, we're going we're gonna to announce those in the fall. Okay, all right, um, fair enough. I think <laughs> they're very exciting. What about Quest? You, you also made like a, bi- a, a VR console. It just launched. I played around yeah. with it a couple days ago. It is really fun. Uh, I what, were you,
3: what were you playing when you threw the I was the playing
1: control? Beat Saber, uh, which is a game where you have two lightsabers and you attack yeah. uh, flying blocks. <laughs>
3: and you, did, is it true that you threw the controller? That is true. I did not strap. follow
1: the safety instructions. I did not use the wrist strap, and so that's a, a, a life hack for all of you in the audience. Um, <laughs> but talk to us about, you know, why did Facebook make a video game console?
4: Yeah, virtual reality is, is really exciting for us. If you think about the history of Facebook, it's always been about human connection, connecting people, uh, and arguably connecting people as broadly as possible. Even over like the, the finest filament of connectivity, people can connect to each other through Facebook. And VR actually is an opportunity to go deeper. Like you could have a really meaningful experience with somebody else who isn't there. Um, the mission of my organization is to make sure people feel together anytime, anywhere. So when you can't be together, is there something we can do that can give you that sense of shared experience? And virtual reality offers an unparalleled opportunity for that. It's very early. Um, and we kind of feel like with the Quest in particular, we just rounded out the first generation of virtual reality. We finally, you don't need a PC, you don't have a bunch of other wires, it's self-contained, you've got your hands, you've got this feeling that you're actually in a place, Um, and it's very exciting actually, we just in the first two weeks um, since the Quest has been available, we've already seen $5 million in, in content sales. And that's important because now that we've got the hardware we, where we think it needs to be for the first generation, you want to build the ecosystem so that there's plenty to do, so that uh, developers can engage and expect to, to make money on the platform. And so, this five million number is a big deal because that means we're kind of on that path to having this become a self sustaining ecosystem.
1: Right. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about another aspect of this privacy focused future, which is some of the trade offs that come with it. And, you know, Mark has been very open about this that when you build a platform that is end to end encrypted, uh, you know, you invite people to do bad things about it. You know, a question that people are wanting me to ask you too on Twitter today is, when Facebook leans into a decision like this, how does it think through the unintended consequences? Is there a formal process for trying to evaluate what is going to happen as you, you know, maybe move into more encrypted products?
3: So, I'd say... Maybe not a formal process, but a series of very passionate, heated debates. I, one of the things that we don't talk about enough, I think, in general, is the tensions that arise so there's, a lot, there's a real tension between privacy and, between, and safety. You, the more data you have access to, the more you can keep people safe. You can identify bad actors of all sorts, but the less private everyone is, and vice versa. And so we put a stake in the ground and said we believed that messaging, the most private of communication media, that really should be encrypted it should be it should be absolutely private uh, and that was going to take time to build yes but it's also going to take time for us to rethink all of our different work around safety and integrity to work um, and be effective in a encrypted environment and so it'll take time um, but that was that is the main tension and that was I mean, we talked about other things as well, but that was the primary topic of conversation.
4: And even within privacy, there's tension. You know, some people, when they say privacy, they really mean privacy from other people. That's kind of how you think of Facebook privacy historically. Some people mean private from the government. Some people mean private from corporations. Some people even mean private from processing on the device. And those things have very different recourses depending on what you care about. If you care about privacy from the government, you're probably not that well aligned with people who are lobbying the government to do privacy regulation. So I think this is a really, um, some of these issues get tied up behind big words like privacy or safety, but they're actually like exploded out into 10 or 20 different actually subcategories that don't all align.
1: So like which of those categories, which kind of privacy is the most important to Facebook?
4: Historically, privacy for Facebook going back to 2008 period was about privacy that people's control over their data and who was able to see it. And I would literally think that was the entire privacy conversation as an industry 10 years ago. Um, we've really come a long way and that's actually good news. We don't have good answers yet. This is a global conversation on privacy. It's playing out not just in the US, it's playing out in Europe, it's playing out in Asia. Um, and so for me, like, I don't know that any one of those things is more important, it depends on who you are. Right. If you're in a country where your government is a greater threat to your personal safety uh, than other forms of harm, that probably is the more important part of privacy. If you're in a more developed country where you're concerned much more about safety as it relates to terrorism or child endangerment, then you would take a different stance. So I do think there is an entire global conversation that's not going to have one answer of what's the one most important thing.
1: Right. Okay. So, so some of these downsides are obvious, but I know Adam. We were talking, and you think there is an upside. You said that you think there are sort of some some new products that you can build around sharing and and messaging that uh, you know maybe take advantage of some of these features. Like, well, what are you excited to build at Instagram?
3: So if you look at the range of things people do on Instagram, we talked a bit before about feed, about stories, and about messaging. All the growth right now, really, in most of the world is in stories and it is in messaging. And we think this is just a sign that there is this paradigm shift, which is as important as the shift to mobile, uh, towards more private forms of communication for a whole bunch of different reasons. And as Boz alluded to, the motivations range um, depending on where you are in the world. But we're seeing more and more that it's sort of a demand. And you like stories, for instance, we talk a lot about ephemerality. People always think about stories They say, oh, they're only around for 24 hours. It's also a people-first model. You decide who you want to look at, so before you actually start to watch stories, which allows people to not worry so much about bothering um, their friends. But even more important, the actual conversations that come from stories are all private because they're messages themselves. You're not arguing about or looking at how many likes you have or having a comment um, argument out in public. And so that is just a more private conversation by nature. And the messaging obviously is the most private. And what Instagram messaging I think is great at, we use the jobs to be done framework a lot. We're not hired usually for utility messaging. You and I trying to coordinate, maybe going out for a dinner or whatever it might be. It's about conversation starters. It's about having an excuse to talk to someone because maybe you just switched high schools or maybe you're single and you're interested in someone. These, you start conversations from feed or from stories. And then you have talked about everything else. You talk about life. The vast majority of messages on Instagram aren't uh, story replies or reshares from feed, but they do make the majority of conversation starters. And so there's a lot we think we can do in that space. There's a lot we think we can, particularly for young people. You
1: said if you're single, does that mean that Instagram's maybe thinking about like Instagram dating?
3: No. Okay.
1: (laughs) Some people say it's already like one of the better uh, dating apps out there. Well,
3: here's the thing. I think we get hired for jobs like dating a lot without actually building products necessarily for them. There's, I mean, when one thing is, oh, interesting. We see sometimes high schools will use Instagram for events. So you'll create a Finsta or a second account You'll create it for an event. It'll be private, so you get to approve every follower. And basically, you send out a bunch of invites, and people actually ask, and then you basically create an invite list. That is a pretty hacky way of doing what a Facebook does pretty well. But it works. Um, it works for certain groups of people, usually, usually teenagers. Um, and that's great. We don't think there's like an issue with that. If people are finding different ways to hack the experience to give them what they need, we're all for it. Right.
1: So something I still am struggling to understand is if there is this big shift into private messaging, what that means for the newsfeed, which is, you know, remains Facebook's biggest moneymaker. You used to run the newsfeed. What's the case for the newsfeed still being vital in like three years?
3: So stories and messaging are better if the conversation is more fleeting, if you don't want it to be around forever, you don't necessarily want to tell everybody in the world about it. Feed is the opposite. It's great if you want it to be around forever. It's great if it's something you want to stand up and yell to 150 people. Um, maybe you just uh, switched jobs, or maybe you had a kid, or maybe you just graduated, whatever it might be. Uh, maybe you just got in a relationship. Maybe you just ate breakfast, like whatever the thing is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Breakfast, maybe not as much. I'm old school. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's going to continue to be an important part of... Instagram. People come to Instagram to be with their close friends, whether that is in feed or stories and messaging. They stay to be inspired by the world around them. And feed, I think, is going to be for the highlights on both. It's going to be the highlights, the best of the best from your friends and also from your interests, be them music or entertainment, food, fashion, travel, whatever it might be.
1: Right. But your expectation is people will maybe look at it less over time because they're going to be spending more time in messages.
3: Certainly as a percentage of the overall time people spend on Instagram. We're seeing that the growth is being driven elsewhere. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be
1: back after this to my live interview with Adam Masseri and Andrew Bosworth.
5: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
1: So Facebook has proposed uh, this Privacy-focused uh, future. Uh, others have proposed a future where Facebook is broken up into its constituent parts. So um, what? Yeah, I know. Um, a, a wild idea. You know, some of the reasoning people give—they, they, you know—the the argument is that it could encourage competition uh, if there were sort of more little laboratories of ideas to try things out. That you know, maybe frankly, some of other companies would just be better at handling some of the challenges that, that y'all have had. Um, and then still, other people just say that you'd make a really great CEO of a public company. Uh,
3: Oh, there it is. Um,
1: So, why don't we just break up Facebook and see how it works?
3: (laughs) Just as an experiment?
1: Yeah, I mean.
3: Just like run it for a month and then decide if you want to pull it back?
1: Do an A B test.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's not how they work. That's not how that works.
1: (laughs) All right. So, what's your case for for keeping it together? Why is it good if it's big and giant?
3: Personally, if we split it up, it might make a lot of my life easier, uh, and it would probably be very beneficial for me as an individual, but I just think it's a terrible idea. I think it it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to solve election integrity, if you're trying to approach content issues like hate speech, um, and you split us up, it would just make it exponentially more difficult, particularly for us on Instagram, to keep people safe. Right now, there are more people who work on integrity and safety issues at Facebook than anybody who works on Instagram. So when I joined Instagram, it was October, no May of last year, as the head of product, I promised everybody at Instagram that I was not going to advocate for any major changes. I was just going to be a sponge for a number of months and try to learn the ropes. And the one place where I broke that promise was on safety and integrity, because when I dug into the details, in far too many areas, we were rolling our own solutions as opposed to leveraging those from the much larger teams at Facebook. And so I broke that promise. It actually upset a lot of people, but it was by far the most responsible way to address our responsibility. So if, if you just split us up, you would cut that off. It would make those problems way more difficult. So I just think that the thing is, you're talking about the split up. The question is, what tr- there are problems. There are many different problems. It's not like we don't have room to improve. But I think you have to be really clear about what problem you're trying to solve and why this will actually help.
1: I hear that. To me, I just sort of hear a circular logic, in like we are now so big that only we can solve our own problems. Well,
4: I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's that. I think anytime, one of the things that's interesting is when you start a, a new network. You know, at first maybe there is some period of time where the content is all reviewable. Like the content can be reviewed.
1: When Facebook is just in the Harvard
4: At class. some point, it's like, okay. And by the way, it raises major privacy concerns, like is, should we be hiring a human to review all content? What if content actually is more encrypted and less available, but let's set that aside for a second. At some point, you cross that threshold, and now like your content is not fundamentally reviewable. And the bigger you get, the more attractive you are as a target to people who would abuse it, but also the more resources you have to fight those targets. Uh, you know, When you were workshopping this question on Twitter earlier, I saw you know, Josh had a good answer which was, yeah, you take Instagram and Facebook apart, you have the same attack surfaces, they just now aren't able to share and combine data. So this isn't circular logic, this is an economy of scale. This is about the ability for a company to invest uh, really massively in a space. And I really do think, look, we're behind on this. We are behind on this. The last year and a half has been exactly as humbling as it, sh- we should have been here way sooner. But we believe these are solvable problems. They're hard problems. They're solvable problems. We're on a path to doing that, uh, both internally in terms of the investment and also working with regulators to try to put regulation in place around things like content and misinformation and election integrity and data portability and privacy. And I think so. I believe these are solvable problems. You certainly don't get yourself any closer to solving them by splitting up. The, the teams and giving each team proportionally fewer resources to deal with.
1: Right, let, let me see if I can ask the question in, uh, in a different way. I wonder what, like, what to you is the best evidence that Facebook is, at, its, at its current size, at this very large size, is a net positive for the world? Right, like when, when I write about these platforms, to me, I, I feel like I'm always just writing about unintended consequences, just stuff you didn't see coming. And the reason, to my mind, that you don't see it coming is it's too big for you to even understand everything that's going on on your platforms. So what is the counterbalance there?
3: I think that what gets written about are the mistakes, and that makes sense. Because essentially what we're dealing with is creating a sense of or creating real accountability. It's not fun for us to be criticized, you know, out in public because we go home where people, we've our our family asks us questions and sometimes they're very clear on what they're upset about and why. Um, but it's fundamentally a healthy thing. We're going through through that sort of, I don't know, accountability process. But that isn't most of what happens on any of these platforms. My brother lives in LA, he's a musician, he's also a film score. My sister's a furniture designer, she lives in Berlin. I use a couple of our services to keep in touch with them on a regular basis. Small businesses use us to reach customers and they can hire more people because of it. People use us to learn about the world around them. Maybe that's the world of news, but maybe that's travel or cooking or something else. We create an immense amount of, I really believe we create an immense amount of value in the world. But I also understand that technology isn't good or bad. You asked... um, The the way I would actually answer your question is I think the mistake that we made was more about not focusing enough on the unintended negative consequences of connecting so many people at such a large scale in the very early years. We were very focused on the good. I still 100% believe in that. We were not sufficiently focused on the bad. And social media specifically is a great amplifier. It can just raise awareness of a good issue or a bad issue. So we need to do more to nurture and grow the good, but also more effectively address the bad.
1: Boz, what's what's your case?
3: Yeah, no, I, this is it. I mean, I think
4: um, people use this product every day. They're not using it because uh, of like habit. They're using it because it's creating real value. People have stories like Adam's about who they're connecting with, being close to their community. And I'm, I'm always a little surprised. I feel like if you go back to mid-90s, before any of this was a thing, and you ask people like, hey, like, what do you think is more valuable and more important in the world, um, like getting your goods delivered in two days, uh, getting uh, like having a, access to all the information, or like being closer with the people you care about? Like that third one feels like a fundamental human good thing that we care about. Um, however, so I, I believe in the value, and I believe people with their preferences and how they exhibit and how they use the, the systems are exhibiting that this is a valuable thing for them. None of that takes away from the very fair and valid criticism of our company uh, about being Pollyannish coming into last year. We are, you can't emphasize how dramatically we've shifted internally over the last year to try to get ahead of, of, of the issues and be more transparent, more open about those issues. We're not there yet. We're trying to have a conversation about it now. Um, but I am—I do believe they're solvable problems, even if they're hard problems.
1: What do you make of the argument, which, which gets talked about a lot, that um, companies that have advertising-based business models in this space are just sort of doomed to create products that have bad incentives and that, that, that Facebook would be better if we paid it a monthly subscription fee.
4: Yeah, this is one of the pieces, I spent a long time at Facebook working on, on the ads business and it costs us, if you want to be really raw capitalist about it, which is not of course how we try to approach our, our work or our business, but if you really wanted to be, it costs us way more to have any of this marginal content, any of this you know, marginal behavior on the platform in terms of the investment that we're making, tens of thousands of people that we're hiring to review content, to put in place, that's just raw cost and it far exceeds any like, top-line benefit. So you know, if you really were a ruthless capitalist, which we're not, you would actually have a much smaller, you'd have much smaller, okay, well, there's a laughter there, I'm going to dig into that with y'all in a second. <laughs> Hold, on that. Hold on to that thought. But um, if you actually were really being ruthless, you would get rid of all speech that was even remotely objectionable because that's just pure downside, that's what you would call red revenue. You know, so in, in point of fact, um, and, and likewise, if you got rid of it, we've got good models of this. WhatsApp, it's you know, we still have important investments that we're making in WhatsApp around misinformation. There's no advertising model driving that. Um, And so I think it's a bit of a red herring. I I think there's issues with advertising business models, then we should deal with those directly for what those issues are. But it has to be done with a total accounting, not just, hey, what are the benefits and time spent? What are the costs in terms of investment that you're outlaying? And I haven't really seen that full-throated analysis done.
3: The other thing is, we obviously believe in the value that we create. Some people don't. That's reasonable. We can always argue about that. But assuming that we create some value, it is, I think, something that we should be proud of that we give that value out for free, right? Because you can you can use our service, whether or not you use a $1,200 phone here in the States or you live in Ecuador or you live in Japan, it doesn't matter. And we actually can afford to provide that service for everyone that wants to use the service because it's an advertising business model, which, by the way, oh, mo- is mostly so paid for by people in developed markets you know, who can afford to. It's easy to make the argument that if there was a subscription fee that the incentives might be better, but then all of a sudden you're cutting off access to a large percentage of the world's population, which I think we too often forget. Right. The, li- right, let's, the, the let's lionization put... of
4: this is so like the
3: lionization yeah. of charging people money is so surprising
4: to me, when like that's fundamentally regressive. Like, it has to be. Like if you're charging people money, it's going to be regressive. We yeah we like are actually building a service that people value for free. Right. You are tired sure. of me talking. Okay.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So um, you. Uh, it's a good question though. You got us going. I appreciate it. Um, uh, so you talked about these enormous investments that, that you're making in safety and security and this relies heavily on a contract-based workforce. Um, uh, I'm particularly interested in content moderation, the the people who do this work, and at this point I've talked with dozens of moderators, uh, you know, many of whom are are struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, having, you know, spent months or or even years looking at some of the content on on Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, I I wanted to ask you, do you think these are good jobs? Are they safe jobs? And and why aren't they full-time Facebook jobs?
3: So a couple different things. One, I think that the people who do manual review of stuff are actually an incredibly important part of the the systems. And one of the things that we don't talk about enough is how all that we do to address safety problems on our platform need to be a collaboration between people and technology. Too often, I think these things are put in opposition. I think that's a false dichotomy. People are great at certain things, particularly nuance. Technology is great at other things, particularly scale. And so what we try to do is engage with both as best we can to address the issues that we have to address. So that's just to start. So the jobs are super important. The I actually really enjoyed your article. I think highlighting the issues for the people who are in these roles is super important. We take it seriously. There's obviously room to improve. Uh, we care a lot about the experience. We care a lot about the environment, et cetera. I mean, the working environment in addition to the actual environment, especially given that last talk. Um, And one of the things that we've tried to do, like more recently, is we raised the minimum wage here in the U.S. to $20 an hour. By the way, we were at $15 an hour for a few years now, which is not the minimum wage in the U.S., even though that keeps getting talked about. It's higher, yeah. It's uh, significantly higher. Um, And we've changed how we evaluate people in these roles, focusing more on accuracy and less on volume. Again, steps to just, I think, examples to demonstrate that we do care, but there's certainly room to improve.
1: Yeah, uh, we're almost out of time. One more thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is you are currently undertaking an experiment to hide likes. Yes. Uh, why? And given that people can still like content and per, you know, presumably that data will still be informing how the, the platform works and feels, like, what is the point of hiding likes? And what are you learning?
3: So you all have heard about this, I assume? Yes, maybe They're not. very savvy. They subscribe to my newsletter. Yeah, He's reading your newsletter right <laughs> oh, now. Oh, perfect. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it <laughs> <is>. <laughs> he doesn't need to look up. <laughs> yeah. These phones, they're addictive. Hey, yeah,
4: congratulations. Yeah. I mean, Kara must, must look up to
1: you as a real inspiration. <laughs> launching her newsletter <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, she's biting my style. But yeah, I love yeah. Her. yeah. Uh,
3: So why are you doing this? Well, We don't want Instagram to be a pressurized environment. We want people to spend their time and their energy connecting with the people they care about and the interests that they care about and likes can create that competitive dynamic. So what we're experimenting with, if you don't know, is just to make the accounts private. If you want to see how many likes are on your own piece of content, you can tap through and go see that. If you want to see how many uh, likes are on someone else's piece of content, you can tap through and manually count it up if you have the time. We can't stop you from doing that. Uh, But the idea is that the small change might actually really change the tenor of the experience. Now, will it work or not? I don't know. We're launching the test right now. Early data has been really positive so far. I think one of the interesting challenges is how can we actually measure the effect on sentiment, is it changing how people feel about the environment, Um, or Instagram as an experience, that will take time, and that is difficult to measure, but I'm still really bullish on it, and so I'm hoping uh, that we can make it work. Cool, all right, let's take some questions from the
1: audience. When you get up to that microphone, if you could please identify yourself, that would be very helpful. Let's go right here.
6: Great. Uh, hi, my name is David Samuel. I'm with Freestyle. Adam, this is a question for you. Cool. I have six kids, ages 10 through 16. All have been on Instagram since about 9 or 10. I live in the Bay Area. Instagram is a primary messaging platform for my kids. One question for the audience is, how many people in the audience have kids younger than 13 on Instagram? Wow, there's got to be a few. There's, a couple, this graduation there's a couple up week, here in the front. But all of these kids have registered with false ages, as they can't register for Instagram until they're 13. And I appreciate some of that direction is coming from Washington, D.C. So Instagram thinks my kids are 20 or 30 years old. My problem, my 10-year-old is now seeing ads kind of related to e-cigarettes, Juul, etc. It's really tragic. I pay YouTube for premiums so my kids don't see Google ads. All right, let's go to the question. The question is, is how can my kids and most of the kids who are on Instagram experience the product without getting false or incorrect advertising to them because there are many young kids under 13 on Instagram? That's my question.
3: So I think, it's, I think it's a good, great question. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so they're thankfully not old enough to even try, so I haven't been tested on this yet. But it, we do have under 13 years on the platform, and that is not something that we want. Right. It's red revenue, to use an expression that uh, Boz used before. It's something we need to do better at. How to do better at that is challenging, but essentially what we need to do is get better at identifying that your is your youngest 10, is
6: it a boy or a girl? I have, well, yeah, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, Nine. 14, 15.
3: But, Nine, you're nine-year-old. But,
6: but, they, but every By kid the way, is on God Instagram. God bless.
3: <laughs> but agreed. Every man. kid, yeah. Yeah, just like, every hold on, kid the is
6: yeah. on it. So no, but, all... right, but there are ways,
3: and we are better in certain languages and in certain countries than others, to identify someone as problemat- as, as being underage. Okay. And also you can report someone as underage, which we then go and look at a bunch of what well, we can look at from a pri- privacy-sensitive point of view to try and identify whether or not they're actually under 13. And if they are, we take them off the platform. We are much better in English than we are in most of the world, but you also brought up ads, which I think is an adjacent issue that I also want to speak to real quick, which is you're not seeing ads for e-cigarettes, if you're seeing ads, actually, do we even do, we don't do ads for e-cigarettes, but that you won't see an ad for something that is age-gated or age-problematic because you are of that age. You're going to see that because there's some other reason why we think you're interested in that content, which is So make sure we don't conflate age with ads targeting, which are both important issues, but not not necessarily one and the same. Yes, they can come together in problematic ways, but there are other reasons why some might be actually seeing the the ads of your kids that they're seeing. All right, we're
1: going to move on to another one. Let's keep the questions fast. Hi, I'm Sahir Zaveri, um, co
0: founder and CEO of King Children. We're actually part of the gift lounge. So, we uh, make 3D printed custom fit eyewear using AR. And my question is really about how you guys think about using AR and VR in kind of your traditional business lines, which are more social and gamified, versus using AR and VR to solve some more tangible problems that could not have been solved without using technologies like AR and VR.
4: Yeah, we think both, both uses are important. I mean, certainly for augmented reality, um, you imagine a world where almost every screen or interface that we're interacting with today, things that we're paying hundreds or thousands of dollars for every couple of years could be replaced with software. And it makes it much more accessible to a much broader range of people um, for the, the kind of the price of entry. Those are a little farther away. Those use cases that are really blending the physical and digital together are a little bit farther away just from a technological standpoint. Um, in the more middle term, there's a tremendous opportunity, uh, I think, to connect people to their work, to connect people to each other in professional contexts with VR technology in particular, in the near term, but also AR over the long term. There's a real um, unfortunate trend in the United States in particular, if you've followed Raj Chetty's work at Stanford, where social mobility is way down. When mobility goes down, access to jobs that are a good fit go way down. We're not only not uh, taking advantage of the workforce that we have uh, because they're geographically distributed, um, and that's a loss not just for those people, but also for us in terms of being employers. So I think there's a a real opportunity to take uh, augmented reality and virtual reality in the long term, this really kind of cool blended physical digital world. In the very near term, quite tangible, taking jobs that we have today, making them better through what is a, a real step forward in technology from a, a interactive platform.
1: Great, right there, quick.
7: Hi, uh, Dylan Byers, NBC News. Uh, questions for both of you, which is just about commerce and retail. Which is, I'd love to know sort of what your ideal vision is for uh, how you integrate retail and commerce into both the Instagram experience feed and story, and then also into the AR experience, um, and then also how you do that without sort of so cluttering
3: the user experience that you end up sort of ruining the product. So I'll start. Uh, So... A few different things. We are very focused on commerce right now on Instagram. We think there's a lot of organic activity happening on the platform. There's obviously businesses that sell on Instagram and brands or people who are interested in that content and there are creators and the economic engine behind the creator (laughs) ecosystem is uh, branded content. But we think there's a lot more room to improve. We think if we can connect, thoughtfully connect the dots between all those involved, we can unlock a lot more value. We need to rank content better for people By the way, Instagram is personalized. Feed is personalized. So if you're interested in shopping, you should get shopping content in your feed should you follow shopping-related accounts. And if Casey isn't, then he shouldn't. That's how we should try to address that and address the color issue. We also need to get creators better insights into what content is doing well and what's not. these These people, this is their livelihood. They use Instagram to make a living. They don't want to bother people with content that they don't feel is authentic to their own personal brands. And then we need to get advertisers better measurement on the return on investment because right now it's very, very little. So what I worry about is that there's some distortion in the market. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but we don't have healthy channels in each direction. But what I'd like to do is if we can do all of that, we can work towards a world where people can, who are interested can discover products on Instagram and through the lens of people they look up to. Maybe you think uh, someone dresses well. Maybe they have a similar skin tone, so you know that makeup that looks good on them will probably look good on you. We think that can be the future or is a big part of the future of shopping. All
1: right, I want to take one last question from... Oh, I, you, I crushed you. Sorry. <laughs> no, they're, they're going to kill me, but I want to give one last question to Eli Patel. That was a very comprehensive answer.
3: All
7: right. <laughs> it didn't cover augmented reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's okay. not yeah.
3: super comprehensive.
7: Casey has to pick me because I'm his boss. Yeah. I'm sorry. There's also that. I would
3: characterize your
7: relationship with Apple as uh, tense.
3: Are you saying you it's would? It's complicated. Would? Is that a statement uh, Yeah, a I think he would he too. Said he said he would characterize it. Oh, he would. Uh, it's complicated. They just took a
7: pretty direct shot at you by launching Sign In With Apple and mandating that their developers use it if they have a Sign In With Facebook button. Do you perceive that as direct of a challenge as everyone else does?
4: I think Facebook has a good relationship with developers, and a lot of times when developers are trying to engage with us, whether it be for marketing or for the platform, they're engaging with us directly. Um, I think we, you know, we launched... Something significantly similar to that three or four years ago at F8, and it wasn't popular with the developers. And the reason it wasn't popular with developers is because developers use email address not just for the login, but also for a bunch of different parts of their workflows. Um, So if you ever use an app, and then you go and see a bunch of ads for an app that you've already installed, that developer probably doesn't have your email address. If they had your email address, they could save a little money, and you could save yourself a, an ad that isn't actually relevant to you because you're already a consumer. And so the real question, I think, is what developers do and, and how that affects consumers. My sense is that for developers, they get a lot of value in their entire chain of, of acquiring consumers. And re engaging them by virtue of having access to that email address, they were not interested in a product like this three or four years ago. Maybe things have changed. Maybe they have. Maybe the, con- the convenience and the efficiency will be good enough finally that it's actually worth it for them. Or alternatively, maybe they'll just roll their own and, and we'll have a, a bigger security, privacy kind of sprawl. That's a possibility as well. Um, so I don't know. I think for us, it, it, we feel pretty confident about the relationship we have with developers. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for, for Apple as it rolls out.
1: All right, thanks very much. Please give a round of applause to Adam and Boz. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all. Thanks again to Adam Aseri and Andrew Bosworth for joining me on stage at Code. We're going to take another quick break now, but we'll be back after this to hear a panel discussion I conducted at this year's conference called Inside Outside. And we're back here on Rico Decode. Uh, for the second part of our show today, we're going to play a panel discussion called Inside Outside.
2: Yes, it was a really fascinating panel where you talked about some of my favorite people and also Antonio <laughs> Garcia Martinez. <laughs> now I like him. That was a joke, Antonio, but please feel badly about it anyway. Casey, talk a little bit about the idea behind this panel.
1: Well, so these were all high-ranking uh, executives um, and also Antonio Garcia Martinez uh, at these companies. <laughs> and we thought, why not ask them about their experiences as people who saw it from the inside and are now on the outside. And, you know, maybe they're not full-fledged critics of these companies, but they they sure do have an interesting perspective and they don't always agree with the current direction of the company. And so we wanted to kind of, you know, see how their, their feelings have evolved uh, since they've left.
2: And they've all ta- been very outspoken about them. Some Jessica's been quite critical of some of the stuff. Nicole's been talking about some of the issues they faced and why they did it, giving you real insight. And Antonio's defending a lot of some of it from the outside, which is interesting too.
1: That's right. Uh, so anyway, that was the idea, but enough preamble, let's play it. So today, uh, y'all are going to be sharing your perspective with us as folks who work inside these companies and can maybe translate some of their behavior and tell us how you feel now as you see various calls for them to be uh, chopped up into bits. I thought we would start by talking about YouTube, which I think is fair to say has had a tough week. Uh, They made a series of decisions and then apologized for those decisions and then said they were maybe going to think about changing their policies in in the future. Jessica, you used to run communications at Google. Give us a sense of how a decision like that gets made around how to enforce a, a policy decision and then how it negotiates deciding what it's going to apologize for and then kind of deal with that Fallout in the, the community.
8: You just apologize for everything. <laughs> <Yeah. Is that laughs> um, at least right now. At least right now. Um, so a piece of content is flagged or it it's escalate, right? It's, it's, you become aware of the content. Uh, there's content policy teams that are thinking very, very deeply about how where this fits in. So if it's a piece of violent content, is it within the context of news, is, it docu- like, is there documentary value? And they're trying to think of what are, you know, there's content that appears all the time that's horrifically offensive, that I think anyone on a common sense level would say, we should get rid of this. But then you look at all the unintended consequences at the moment that you get rid of that piece of content, what happens with these other kinds of things that actually probably should be on the platform. And so there's usually a recommendation about what to do. I think you were, that Peter yesterday was pushing Susan on whether she had viewed a particular video and that kind of thing. Right it's certainly not part of the process that a CEO or an exec is reviewing that content. That would probably not be a good use of their time. But if something is blowing up externally, of course, any exec that is touching that on some level, communications, a CEO, whatever it might be, might be reviewing a particular video or might be looking at a compilation because you want to know what's going on in your platform and the decisions being made, but they're not ultimately making that call. And I think that's a good thing because the people, content moderation is so hard. Anyone in this room, would, if we tried to do what they're doing every day, I think we'd have a hard time. And so, you know, I think uh, it's actually right that the groups are doing it. If there's a problem, I think it's that these are not new problems. They've been there from the very start. And I think historically the platforms have been way too lax in terms of what is allowed. And so it's great that they're now moving towards having much stricter policies, but that should have happened before. Yeah,
1: I mean, externally to me, it feels very much like everyone's flying by the seat of their pants. Everything is being made up as we go along, and there's not really any accountability uh, for these companies. Like inside, and maybe you know, you can speak to this too, when there's a tough legal decision that, that needs to get made or when you know, advertising policies are being written, is there a sense of internal calm, or is it always just kind of like, I don't know?
9: It's always chaos.
1: Yeah, great. Um,
9: that's, <laughs> that's, part of, that's part of the deal. I, so, so, like, just to step back for a minute, I think that, like, if you look at the twenty years that we've had really strong commercial web uh, services. Um, I think in the first era, and I am of that era, like we were building tech and thinking we were gonna change the world for the good, that connecting everyone was gonna be awesome, that everyone would have access to information, and and all of a sudden, you know, children in small African villages were gonna be able to see the same things that you could at Oxford University. That's amazing, and that still exists, by the way. But I think that, um, and I, I think that still people who are in tech are largely there to try to do good but I also think that we have gotten either intellectually lazy or simply complacent about the fact that technology does not equal good. And and there's a technological historian named Melvin Krasberg who says like, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Mm. So the thing that I think technology companies need to realize now is, we, nobody owes us a free and open internet designed for our good, right? We have to build that with every product, with every business model, with every feature we launch. And, and that's the place we're at now, which is that we failed to build it at the beginning in our internal optimism. And, and we now know what it looks like for it to be weaponized and we have to build to that.
1: Right. And it seems to me that the frustration over the fact that we have not yet built built the good internet is why uh, a lot of folks are now calling for some of these companies to be broken up, right? I think there's a sense that maybe if they were smaller, they would be more manageable, that competition might encourage, you know, new companies to try to build that that better internet. Um, Antonio, you worked at Facebook. Do you think there's a good antitrust case to break up Facebook?
7: I do, but I I want to respond to one thing you said before on the accountability front. You know, it's... It's hard to ask for accountability from a corporate structure in which ultimately their loyalties lie with the shareholders and with the employees, right? Chris Hughes got into this in his famous Vanity Fair piece, and I, I've, I've written about it as well. I think these decisions, part of the reason why everything seems so hair on fire is because suddenly Facebook has become like the, the Supreme Court of the United States and it's deciding what is free speech in the United States, right? My personal opinion is I'd rather not there be government regulation of these companies, but if, if someone's going to regulate speech on Facebook, it should be the government, actually. That's who's accountable to us as democratic citizens inside this. Yeah. democracy. And so if you want to make it such that publishing anti-vax content is not a good thing or, or is taken down, well, then make it illegal. And Facebook follows the law in every market that it operates in. That, I think, a democracy is the structure where you get accountability, not a public company, frankly. But th- I
1: mean, I hear that, but also it's like, like, what, like Facebook has no incentive to, rec- uh, to you know, recommend that a bunch of new moms join an anti-vax group, right? Like, t- to me, it seems like they have a rational self-interest in doing some of this stuff, and it shouldn't take regulation for them to get there.
7: Well, but if it drives engagement, they could actually monetize that attention and that time on site. Right, right. So, I mean,
1: the, so they have financial incentives to do it. Yeah, they have. All right, but you think it should be broken up anyway, so Yes, why? And, it,
7: and not because it's going to solve this problem, to be clear, but um, yeah, for a long time, antitrust in this country since the 80s has been about consumer harm, right? Usually through the pricing mechanism. But what does that mean with a free app? It's impossible to actually figure out if there's consumer harm, right? So in the case of Facebook, it's pretty clear that the acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram were obviously kind of anti-competitive blocking moves, right? There's been polls out a lot of Instagram and WhatsApp users don't even realize that it's owned by Facebook, right? So they're getting zero utility out of the fact that it's owned by Facebook. So I think if you if you structured antitrust in terms of why you should do antitrust around rather the consumer harm, lack of consumer benefit, but huge benefit to the sort of conglomerate. Um, I, mean, I think on this stage, basically yesterday, Boz effectively coped to the fact that um, you know he was trying to make the case against antitrust, which is oh we can we can moderate content better if we're one single entity.
1: Right.
7: I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Let me try to phrase it a different way. If you've raised the bar on content moderation such that something like the Christchurch shooting video, for example, has to be brought down in in two hours, if that's like table stakes now for a social network, your ability to do that is now a competitive advantage, right? That's one way of of looking at it. And yeah, of course, Facebook is way better at doing that um, if they have an operation staff of 10,000 people, which you've reported on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the the justification for breaking a face would be that they have massive economies of scale when it comes to the technical and sort of operation side of of their amalgam, and I I think it's not going to solve this problem, but over the long term, the innovation you would drive through competition would potentially solve some of these problems.
1: Right. Uh, Nicole and Jessica, uh, y'all both worked at Google. Do you see a good case for antitrust uh, for that company?
9: So uh, let me try and take it in a slightly different way, which is I think we have to figure out what we're trying to solve for, and it's not just bigness. I mean, like, bigness is a part of the problem because of scale, but, but but it's not just bigness. So, like, if we break up the companies, but they're still all operating and competing in an ad ecosystem, which is driven by collecting all of our personal information and manipulating our attention and our preferences, we haven't solved the problem that we're trying to solve, right? So, like, I don't think breaking up the companies may be a step, but it's not sufficient to address the harms that I think we're
8: worried about. Huh? I think... Yeah, I I heard um, Facebook yesterday and the argument they made and that they've made before, like you were saying, is this idea that if they were just, you keep everything together, you get all the benefits of all these resources, which, and that they can then solve the problems, which is kind of like an oil company telling you that right. you shouldn't look at alternative energy sources because <laughs> the oil company is the best to fix the oil spills, right? Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Now, if you were, like, you use the example of content moderation, so if you look at that and you make the argument, which I think is very credible, that the more data you have, the more you're going to be able to train the AI models, which is going to, like, which ultimately is what you want. You don't want to be doing human moderation. Fine, yes, better to have all the assets for all that data. But then figure out, a way for the industry to pool that stuff. Like, that already happens today. If you look at child sexual abuse imagery, the companies all work together on that. Why, couldn't, like, who, why should you ever have a competitive advantage on anti-harassment? Like, bullying should not be a proprietary technology. That should be something that the industry could figure out together and benefit from. So you could, like, if there was, if they had to figure it out, they would figure it out. They all figured out how to pivot to mobile, Right, which we all thought was gonna be so hard. They all figured out how to pivot to mobile, they can figure out how to do this. And I think your point more broadly about all the companies is right, Like there's a conflation of privacy anxiety and content moderation and a just general sense of bigness and not knowing where the companies end. And so I think any regulation for it to be effective needs to be very clear on what it's trying to solve, but also really getting at issues of control and transparency. And then finally, I would say, also looking at, I think it's wrong that a startup today has to be thinking about what their path is to get acquired by one of the big companies. And so I think, I think that actually is fundamental. How do you make startups, how do you create an environment where they can succeed on their own and you can have more competition? Because I I think that's increasingly less the case
1: maybe you don't think that uh, a full breakup is going to solve the problems i wonder if there are specific regulations that having worked in these companies you think would be super effective right like would a would gdpr coming to america be a good thing um are there regulations around content moderation around election integrity like what what feels the most urgent to you
7: i would get rid of third-party data companies for one
1: say a little bit about what a third-party data company does
7: so I, I'm not a big fan of GDPR in general, but I think it's got a couple aspects to it I think that are a good thing. One is data portability, the fact that you can take your data away from Facebook, even though there's still a network effect there, so who knows, but still, you should have that right. Uh, the other is first-party versus third-party interaction, right? First-party is a very natural thing. You have a relationship with Netflix, say. You use Netflix, and it gives you recommendations. Your your experience of the service improves because they use your viewing data to build models, right? Third-party data is me Googling your name and getting an SEO from various companies that I could mention that I won't, uh, that offer me to look up all your financial voting and criminal records for the past thirty years, right? Or it's your carrier selling your geodata, trying to squeeze a little bit more, you know, juice from the lemon, uh, to, you know, Uh, to the ad tech stack. That that sort of third-party usage in which you see no benefit from it whatsoever and it's very murky and you have very little control, I am very skeptical of. While I'm less skeptical of first-party companies and Facebook is a first party in terms of their experience, they only run ads on themselves, um, so is Netflix and so is a bunch of companies, I think that should be regulated more lightly because in some sense, you, the consumer, look, the reality with privacy is that it's always a trade-off between privacy and convenience and security, right? We make that that trade-off all the time, right? If the government said, hey, I want, we need to take your fingerprints, no one would ever do it, right? But hey, you can skip the TSA line if you do, and we call it pre, like where do I put my fingers, right? That's the trade-off. And so I think as long as you're making the right trade-off that you yourselves all have to make for yourselves between privacy and convenience with a company you recognize, I think it's okay. Right. But as soon as you start losing that connectivity between utility that I'm seeing and control I have and where my data goes, I think that's a problem. And so that's one thing GDPR, I think, does very well.
1: Yeah.
9: I don't know if that'd go for as far as, like, get rid of all third-party data companies, because I think that they, they do drive values that, like, not every company can be a consumer-facing company, right? Some of them are just going to do back-end stuff, and that's a, that's a value. Um, but I do think that, like, I feel like I'm going to quote House Stark, right? He's like, regulation is coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> regulation is here, and it's time, and, and it's good. I, 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 like, I, I have the same sort of qualms about GDPR and, and sort of the export of European values all around the world, because it doesn't actually fit in every other country um but i I think the things that were really important was like it required you to put somebody in charge of privacy and data it required you to have a program that was documented in other words somebody had to allocate resources and budget to a thing and make sure that the executives get a regular report about it that actually matters hugely with the companies that I, i consult with now like that has been monumental in changing culture and executive perspective. And I think those types of regulations can do a lot.
1: Yeah. Uh, You you mentioned company culture. This is one of the things I want to talk to you guys about the most, which is the difference in the uh, sort of internal activism culture at Google versus Facebook, right? So Google last year, we see this uh, amazing walkout and protest of injustices at the company. And it seems like it sparked like you know, almost an existential crisis at the company about what its values are. We've never seen anything similar within Facebook, right? There's never been, like, a group of employees, like, coming together to publicly protest uh, an internal action. Why was the Google walkout possible, and and why does the Facebook walkout seem impossible?
8: Well, I think Google, first of all, I would hope that, the reasons for the Google walkout in terms of paying off a bunch of men who were accused of sexual harassment, I would hope that that would not be dependent on company culture and I actually think that probably could have happened at Facebook. But I agree that, um, that there are cultural differences. I think Google, I mean, Google's the internet, right? Like when it was when it was started, the idea was just open access to information, making information more accessible to everyone. And that was as much the vision externally and what they were building as it was internally. I mean, you, there was a point, it's not the case anymore, anyone could see the code base, right? You could ask questions every week to the founders. Um, and there's always been an activist culture there. It's just that it wasn't necessarily playing out externally. Um, it's become much more heightened, I think, particularly post 2016. But um, Google's always had that. Um, and I could think of, Innumerable examples of where the employees have pushed back and actually reversed company policy on things.
1: Yeah. As you watch it, do you think like this kind of current unease could spill over and make life more difficult for the company to, you know, um, I don't know, just innovate, keep like keep making product. Like, is there like if, if, is there a risk that the um, employee base loses confidence in the executives and it, it triggers like some kind of broader issue?
8: i mean, I think there's always i think yes i think it it creates problems for sure i think the bigger issue which is not only applicable to google but all the larger big tech companies is that if you start to lose tech talent in particular because they no longer want to work at the company that some of the things that you obviously the salaries are insane and that will still continue to pull a ton of people into these companies But some of the additional perks, right, that you'd be at a party and people are like, oh, you work at this company, or your parents would get super excited. If some of that stuff starts to fall by the wayside, and meanwhile you have a ton of startups, say in San Francisco, so now you get to live in a city. You're not on a bus two hours a day. Um, you know, I think that's actually the danger, and, and I, but I also think it's also the promise, right, that I think that, that one of the greatest things, like regulation will happen, it'll probably be ham-fisted, it'll probably be awkward, and we'll probably all be criticizing it the whole way through, but I think some of the biggest drivers of change at the company will be on the cultural side and the actual employees pushing for that change, so I, on the whole, I think it's actually a positive.
9: Yeah, I think, so I think Antonio can speak to Facebook, because I, yeah. I don't know their is directly, but like watching what's happening, I think there are some companies that are super founder-driven, and so what the founder says is the way things are. I think there are some that are mission-driven. And to me, those are the companies where you see employees who, like, really feel ownership about what they're putting into the world. Like, so when I see these employees... Um, walking out or, or activating on um, what they think their products should be or shouldn't be used for, I think that's amazing because we want them to feel ownership about what they're putting into the world, whether they're an executive or someone who's coding at the, at the lower levels.
1: I agree with you completely, and it raises the question, why don't people do that at Facebook?
7: Yeah, you know, it was, it's funny what you said. I think, at least when I was there, and I think the culture's changed slightly, Facebook seemed something between a religion and an empire that you were a part of, right? So I think it was partially mission-driven and partially founder-driven, and people were very loyal to Zuckerberg and the founding employees. And, and, you know, I was as much as part of that cult as anyone else. But I think what you're seeing now is not necessarily protest. That's going a little bit too far. I don't think uh, that's quite the Facebook vibe. But a lot of the leaks that you're seeing coming out of Facebook would have been absolutely unthinkable five years ago. And to me, that really is a sign, a symptom of some sort of internal turmoil going out of Facebook and people questioning what the impact of that society is. But as Jessica said, I think it's funny because when you're inside these companies, from the outside, they seem very monolithic and very and very impenetrable, but when you're inside, they're actually incredibly open, right? Like, a lot of the leaks have been precisely about, you know, Boz, for example, the executives, having very frank and open discussions with every employee saying, this is what we're doing and these are the trade-offs. So inside, it actually is a, a, a culture of, like, open questioning and debate. The thing is, when you go to the outside, right, I think that's where it gets... Um, That's where it gets weird, and that's where the cracks in the facade start appearing, I think, when they start calling you and leaking stuff to you, Casey.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, Which they should, by the way. Uh, My DMs are open. So, um, we only have a couple minutes left. Nicole, I know that you wanted to sort of end on a high note and maybe talk about some tech out there that you saw living up to the ideal that you mentioned earlier, where it is tech that is is good and intentional, where, where people are taking ownership of it. So, you've worked in the public and the private sector. Like, what is something out there that makes you feel like tech uh, is still going to be a positive force.
9: (laughs) Uh, Aren't you tired of being beaten up? Like, let's talk about (laughs) tech for good, as opposed to, like, (laughs) just how bad tech is for all of our democracies. Um, So, so, Here's the thing I want to say is, like, you have the power to change things, and there is actually an institution where its entire business is about making people's lives better, and it is your government. So I know that, like, we have a really important election coming up, and I thought Stacey Abrams last night was phenomenal. We need to all pay attention to that, but the problems that we have in this country and around the world are going to be with us way beyond the 2020 election. So here's my plea is you understand scale and infrastructure and UX and how to deliver services to people and make it easy, your government really needs you. We need to all go out and serve because the government is just us and we're only as good as we get it to be. I am tired of listening to politicians who have the barest understanding of how the internet works And that's on us, so we have to get out there, and I don't care whether it's you go vote or you get your neighbors to vote or you serve a tour with US Digital Services or Code for America. They are doing amazing things like in California, which is where I'm from, They just got a million more people in California on food stamps because the paperwork was keeping a lot of people who are eligible from it from getting the food they need, and food insecurity is a huge problem, particularly for the senior population. They just went through and worked with counties to clear people's criminal records. One in three Americans has something on their background um, check that indicates that they have a criminal history, and that keeps them from employment, from student loans, from housing, Some Code for America teams went in and are cleaning up these things so that people in the hundreds of thousands can suddenly start turning around their lives. If you want to make an impact, go serve. And if you are a woman or a person of color, I am doubling down on you. It is time for you to get in there.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks again to Nicole Wong, Jessica Powell, and Antonio Garcia Martinez for joining me on stage at Code. And thank you, Casey, for
2: moderating that panel. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. And you can follow Casey Newton at... Casey Newton. At Casey Newton. My executive producer Erica Anderson is at Erica America. My producer Eric Johnson is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks to you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.